In the latest episode of Vamos Verde, we are going to talk to one of the most prolific goal scorers in Major League Soccer history, Austin FC striker Giassi Zardes. We also talked to some folks who have been bringing the soundtrack to Austin's nightlife for over 20 years and are now providing the soundtrack at Q2 Stadium, their official DJ collective, Peligrosa. That's the latest episode of Vamos Verde. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier this week, I went to a house in Northeast Austin. I met Jess Bowie, her wife Katie, and their St. Bernard dog, Orlando. Oh my god, you're so big. You're just a big stuffed animal. I've always been curious about the neighborhood where Jess and Katie live. It's in Austin's Cherrywood neighborhood, right behind an elementary school. And the streets here are full of these colorful two-story duplexes. They, they look like, you know, if you were like at a farmer's market and looking at a stand of fruit. There's just like so many pops of color and like really unexpected colors too. Jess and Katie's house is like this baby blue color with this yellow trim. Almost like marigold as the, the sort of um, complementary color to it. Uh, but we have neighbors who have like a literal watermelon color. Like their house is bright fuchsia with really intense green trim. These homes were built in the 1940s for men returning home from World War II. And they're really quirky. Like these houses are bizarre. There are some very strange things. Um, what are some of the strange things in your house? Jess points to this built-in bookshelf in the hallway. We have this like sort of inset shelf that doesn't have a back. So it's like this bookcase with no back. And like, so there's no back. So if I punch the books, would they fall through the other side? Absolutely fall. Yeah, fall to the floor. I wanted to talk to Jess about this house because I had heard something. I'd heard a rumor that these houses could not be built today. And I was told it had to do with zoning. These are rules that cities adopt that tell people what they can build and where. Which makes sense, you really don't see duplexes like these, what are called stack duplexes, where one family lives downstairs and the other upstairs. I mean, you really don't see many duplexes in Austin. Anyway, I had heard the city pass zoning rules after the 1940s that basically made these kinds of houses hard or impossible to build. Some of this stuff just seems so arbitrary. Jess pointed to a shed in the backyard. Shortly after we moved in, we found out that this back structure, which is totally separate from the main structure of the house, um, it had previously had water and, and there is still electricity there. But the city apparently found out and came to shut it off for the last people who lived here because they claimed having water back there made it a triplex. And that was against city code, um, which I don't know, that feels really silly to me because at the same time, it's like, well, if you reasonably could have three units on one lot, why wouldn't you? The answer is zoning. The city says you can't have more than two families living on this piece of land. Jess is a writer and an editor. She's not a city planner, but turns out- I have a passing interest in city planning through a video game that I'm very involved in. Um, What's the video game called? It's called City Skylines and it's, it's you know, uh, you, you zone certain parts of the city for certain things. And so, yeah, I have a maybe an elementary knowledge of a zoning. But yeah, it's a little boring. Yeah, it is a little boring. But zoning impacts so much of what is around us. Okay, last thing I'm going to play a slightly annoying 
game with you, uh, which is just naming um, a couple zoning regulations okay. and seeing if you have any guesses at what the hell they mean. Okay, so I'm going to start with setback. Setback. Um, okay, I feel like this would be a regulation for how far back your house has to be from the curb. Excellent. Yeah. Nice. Well, technically, it's how far back from the property line, but curb is close enough. So in Austin, for like single family homes, it's usually 25 feet. Okay. Your house has to be 25 feet away from the curb. Yeah. Why? <laughs> That's a great question. Next one, impervious cover. We talked about this in episode three. Ooh. Um, that sounds like um, some requirement for how much tree coverage you have. Sh shade? Shade from trees? Mm, no. Impervious cover is what portion of your land blocks water from being absorbed into the ground. So like a driveway or the foundation of your house. Hi, Orlando. You're like, I want to play this game. Okay, this one I think is easier. Height. The height of the house. <laughs> Great work. Um, okay, this one. Okay, compatibility. Okay, I feel like this, and this sounds like it'd be a fucked up one, but I feel like this has something to do with the, the lot's compatibility with like the neighborhood, with the aesthetics, or with the function of the neighborhood. So not quite. Well, sort of. So compatibility, this one's kind of interesting. So it has to do with single family homes. If there is a building within about a football field's length of a single family home, the height is restricted. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, okay. I have heard about this. And this is what, from what I understand, this is, yeah, what keeps uh, sort of larger, denser housing structures from being built, uh, especially in like sort of really interior parts of Austin. When I left Jess's house, it still wasn't clear to me if some zoning rule made it impossible to build the duplex she lives in. I reached out to about half a dozen people who might know. One builder said, no, it wasn't outlawed. These homes could still be built today, just no one wants to build them. Another wasn't quite sure what to make of it. One architect told me, yes, the zoning definitely made it impossible to build these homes. Anyway, the last word I got was from the city. I was told they were not aware of any rules prohibiting stacked duplexes. Okay, so maybe they can be built, but they're not. As I stood in her front yard and looked at her baby blue duplex, I thought, man, what a rebel. In a sea of big apartment buildings and single family homes, this thing is an anomaly. And she stands at the center of a big, big fight. A fight that has to do with zoning. I'm Audrey McGlinchey. This is Growth Machine, how Austin engineered its housing market. Episode six, there go the neighborhoods. Austin got its first zoning rules in 1931. These rules were actually based off of the city plan from 1928, the plan that forced Austin's black residents to move east. We talked about this in episode one. Anyway, back in the 30s, the city regulated a bunch of things. There were rules about horse stables. No more than four horses, please. 
and about where certain businesses could go. Blacksmiths, bakeries, boarding homes, acid manufacturers. Yeah, that was a thing. Each was limited to a certain part of Austin. As you mentioned in earlier episodes, a lot of East Austin was zoned for heavy industry. So after 1931, the city adopts a whole new set of rules about every decade or so to fit a new and changing city. Okay, so maybe we don't manufacture acid any longer, but there were other things like requiring parking spots to be built once people started driving everywhere. Every decade, revise, 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 until we stopped. It's been a long time ago. I'm surprised I can talk as coherently as I seem to be about it, although... uh maybe not as coherently as you might like. (laughs) This is Donna Christoponis. She was Austin's assistant director of planning back in the 1980s. You know, land use and comprehensive planning and so on for the city. Donna's big job at the time was to help rewrite the land development code, those zoning rules, like we'd done every decade. But the 80s in Austin was an entirely different beast. As we talked about, this was when a ton of people were moving to the city. It was the early start of tech, and Austin's population had hit 350,000 people. So Donna and her colleagues sat down to sort out what rules they needed to change. But they weren't just thinking about new people moving here. Well, I think there were really two big issues uh, that were driving the conversation. The first one, obviously, would be Barton Springs. Remember, this was also the beginning of this big environmental movement in Austin, a movement to stop building in the southwest part of town and protect Barton Springs from pollution. But there was also a second concern. People living in single-family neighborhoods, basically neighborhoods where most of the homes are houses with one family and a yard, were getting mad about other types of houses, duplexes, apartment buildings being built near them. They're in a historic neighborhood and they see all this encroachment and they're not excited about it. And there's also some concern about uh, how it looks uh, encroaching into the, the wonderful small bungalows and historic homes that were in the area. And these people, typically homeowners, were gaining a lot of political power in Austin. Starting in the early 70s, people started forming neighborhood associations. This is basically where you'd get together with your neighbors and fight for or against something like, hey, we want a park or, hey, we're not happy with all the traffic in our neighborhood. Anyway, in the decade between 1970 and 1980, Austin went from having just a handful of neighborhood associations to nearly a hundred. Usually it was something that set it off, some action by the city that that was going to change everything so dramatically that it would impact, you know, the value, the, uh, the ease, the quality of the neighborhood. Alan McMurtry moved to Austin in the mid-70s. One of his first jobs was working for the city's health department. He'd go around and ticket people for tall grass and weeds on their property. So I'd go out, I'd look at the weed lots, and then I would uh, decide whether it violated the ordinance or not. And uh, if I thought it did, then I would go down and research the, uh, the records at the county courthouse. In 1976, Allen bought a house in Allendale, the neighborhood in West Austin between Burnett Road and Mopac. A couple years after moving there, he joined the Neighborhood Association, and he turned out to be a real asset. You see, while he had been rifling through all these property records for his job, he noticed something about his neighborhood. I realized that the zoning in Allendale was interim, and so that meant that the city didn't have to give notice. They could just 
with a simple majority changed the zoning to whatever they wanted to. And I thought that was fairly dangerous. Basically, it was easier at this time for someone to build something other than a single family home in Allendale. So like a duplex or a triplex. Where that had happened in other cities, Allen said, bad things followed. The quality of life really, uh, really changed. It, it dropped significantly. The crime rate went up and, and it was just a mess. And I said, man, this is, this is ripe for the same thing happening. I want to be clear here. Allen's presenting anecdotal evidence. The research on this is pretty mixed, and there's no clear link between apartment buildings and the people who live in them and crime. But this was people's perception and why Allen says the Allendale Neighborhood Association did what it did. I can't tell you the light bulb moment when it was like, hey, we need to make this step. But uh, Austin was growing fast, and uh, you never know who might move into some position of authority. So the Neighborhood Association went to city council members and asked them to make it harder to build anything but single-family homes in the neighborhood. In 1980, the council voted on what was called the Allendale Zoning Rollback. It was unanimous to keep the neighborhood full of single-family homes. Allen was quoted in the newspaper at the time saying that he was tickled to death. Yeah, I was tickled to death because the the city recognized you know, the vitality in the neighborhoods. And uh, so they matched the zoning. So there would not be continued fights. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stability that I think really makes for a, a viable city. So as city planners go to rewrite the zoning rules in the early 80s, they have to balance two things. On one side, there are these newly powerful neighborhood associations, like in Allendale, where people generally don't want their neighborhoods to change. On the other side is the reality that more people are moving to Austin and need places to live. There were lots of public meetings and there were lots of neighborhood meetings. This is Donna Christoponis again. And there was a very strong push to get it done. So the city makes a couple big changes. One, they created that compatibility rule I mentioned earlier. Basically, it's this rule that restricts buildings near single-family homes from being tall. The city did a couple other things, more parking requirements, bigger lot sizes in some cases. The idea was to make sure that apartments got built on busy streets and not inside single-family neighborhoods. Donna says when the council went to vote on March 1st, 1984, everyone seemed happy. Happy may not be. They were satisfied. They were content. Again, not the perfect document. There's no such thing, but... It provides protections and it allows us to develop. I looked really, really hard for a recording of this city council meeting, but I could not find it. What I did find was a very short article on the front page of the Statesman from that day. After five years of work, the vote had been unanimous. Nothing seemed really controversial about changing the zoning rules. Since then, the city's amended the zoning rules from 1984, but it's never totally rewritten them. I mean, what is it to you to know that we are still in some form using the the code that you worked on here in Austin, you know, 40 years later? Well, I guess I should feel glad about it, but I don't particularly. Donna says doing something like a complete zoning rewrite, changing all these building rules to fit a new and different city, That takes years, and it's not something a politician typically wants to touch. Having a long-term outlook is is really sometimes quite unusual. 
and it's easier to muddle through. And that's what Austin has chosen to do, or not even necessarily chosen. Making, making a decision is sometimes not making a decision, and so therefore you do muddle through. And muddle through means piecemealing it, amending it. And then after a while, what was a document that seemed to work in its time has been transported 40 years later and really has, if you stop and think about it, not a lot of relevance to the way we live today or the issues that we face today. In 1984, Donna helped write zoning rules so that houses could be built to accommodate a growing city of 350,000 people. Three decades later, Austin's population had more than doubled, and housing was starting to get a lot more expensive because we hadn't built enough of it. So elected officials said, we have to do something. They decided that something was zoning, changing the rules to allow more housing. Donna's work made people happy, or at least content. But this time around, no one was happy. More after the break. KUT's AT Explained is back with a brand new season. Our first episode, what's up with that tower in Clarksville? I've heard it called the Clarksville Eiffel Tower, the tower, the leaning tower of Clarksville, all those names. Subscribe to AT Explained wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our next AT Explained live show at the Paramount Theater on April 3rd. Brand new stories told live on stage. Get your tickets at austintheater.org. Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. Before we get to what happened after 1984, I gotta get something out of the way. I wanna talk about economics. I'm so sorry. That's right, supply and demand as it relates to housing. Does building more housing lead to lower prices overall? The answer is yes. Scholarly research has shown in study after study that the more housing is built, the lower prices tend to be. Sarah Bronin is a professor of planning at Cornell University. In multiple studies, researchers have shown that when zoning rules change and more housing gets built, housing prices either fall or don't rise as quickly. In Austin, developers are building a ton of apartments right now, like more than ever before. But much of that new housing is on the edges of the city, not in close-in single-family neighborhoods. Areas with less restrictive zoning that enables more housing to be built doesn't see prices increase as quickly as areas with restrictive zoning that blocks new housing. It's not that the new housing is cheaper. It's usually not. A new car is typically going to be more expensive than a used car. It's that all the people who want to live in that neighborhood won't push up prices, competing for the same house or the same apartment. Whew. Okay, back to our regular programming. So in 1984, Austin rewrites its zoning rules in an attempt to accomplish two things, to stop changes in some neighborhoods and to prepare for new people moving here. And move here, they did. Between 1980 and 2010, 450,000 people moved to Austin. 450,000. And honestly, that was just the beginning. 
In the next decade, the city and its surrounding suburbs grew faster than any other big city in the country. It may sound obvious to those of us who have been here in Austin for a while, but a new list says Austin is the fastest growing large city in the United States. The Austin's elected officials wanted to make a plan for all of this population growth. As more people moved here, where would they go? Where should we make it easier to build? In 2012, the council adopts a plan to answer these questions. They call it Imagine Austin. Imagine it. Imagine Austin includes a lot of great ideas. Ideas that will maintain Austin's unique quality of life and the experience that's treasured by residents and visitors alike. The tagline for the plan was compact and connected. Elizabeth Mueller is a professor of planning at UT Austin. So there was a lot of emphasis on making the city a kind of more transit-friendly city, so people would be less auto-dependent, there'd be less driving, we'd be less sprawling. I'll just get right to it. The idea was to get Austin to work more like New York, Philadelphia, London, Mexico City, places where you can walk to a grocery store, walk your kid to school or to a park. That's hard to do in a city like Austin, where everyone's so spread out. And part of that is because of zoning. When you look at a map of zoning in Austin, single-family zoning is yellow, and it is a sea of yellow, like a daffodil field. So it's really hard to build anything other than one house for one family on one piece of land. So imagine Austin, this plan. Imagine a city with more duplexes, more small apartment buildings. You're going to have to have different housing types than you might have in parts of the city and different uses allowed in areas that have been largely exclusively residential. It's great to have a plan, but without rules, it means very little. So in the early 2010s, the city decided to rewrite the zoning rules for the first time since 1984. At the same time, the public elected new council members, including this woman. Sure. Uh, Delia Garza, currently the Travis County attorney, former mayor pro tem, and... Um, council person for District 2 Southeast Austin. In 2014, Delia Garza was elected to represent one of Austin's poorest districts. Delia had never been a politician. She actually worked as a firefighter. So she knew very little about the technicalities of zoning, things like setbacks, compatibility. But she also knew very little about the emotional side of zoning, of how worked up people can get about changing zoning rules in their neighborhoods. Delia remembers listening to zoning cases in her first few months on the council and thinking to herself, Wow, we have kids that can't get food in Southeast Austin, that don't have sidewalks, that, um, you know, there's three families living in a house because that's, that's what their family needs to do. And this person's so mad about a lot size or a setback or, you know, a, a building that's taller than four stories. That, that was just really surprising. I was introduced to a, um, a, a side of privilege that I never had, had seen before. This is the minefield that Delia and others were stepping into when they decided to rewrite Austin's zoning rules. Okay, so it takes staff a few years to write these rules. Remember, this stuff is like really complicated. And it had been amended, chopped up, added to for nearly 30 years. So they're writing, they're writing, they're writing. And in 2017, the city finally releases the first draft. It was more than a thousand pages long. A thousand pages of technical terms that all amounted to what Austin could look like over the next several decades. You guys ready? You ready? 
And just like with Imagine Austin, it had a really cool name, Code Next, NEXT in all caps. This is former Mayor Steve Adler at a press conference. Morning, everybody. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for being here uh, this morning. This is uh, a real important day. Uh, this is the day when the uh, initial draft uh, of the land development code rewrite in the city of Austin gets circulated. And the city's uh, trying to make to this really boring but end, very important thing jazzy. They have tote bags, sunglasses, all printed with the word code next on them. Trying to really, like, make this a cool thing. Coming up on City View, Code Next is on tour of open houses throughout Austin. Find out how you can get involved. But people weren't that jazzed about it. It didn't take long for people to start ripping apart this thousand-page document. It is a waste of um, mindshare, intelligence, uh, skill. While there is really no short-term change in the long term, uh, it builds an incentive to tear down existing housing and build high-profit housing. Mayor Adler, you made a promise. You said there's no sense in shoving density where it would ruin the character of the city we're trying to save in the first place, where it is not wanted by its neighbors, and where we would never get enough of the additional housing we need anyway. There were basically two camps. On one side, you had longtime homeowners from really every part of the city. Is it that you do not need to honor existing agreements between the city and neighborhoods? Or is it that you can and you feel you should cancel individual property rights by fiat? These people tended to be older and, well, whiter. Right now we're headed down 6th Street at 90 miles an hour with a bucket on a head. We have to stop the madness. They opposed Code Next. Like, they really hated this thing. They worried that changing the zoning rules to allow new housing and new people would make traffic and flooding worse and change their neighborhoods. Denser development would exacerbate traffic flow and make them significantly less safe. Some of those people worried new housing would displace current residents, make the gentrification that was already happening even worse. Austinites of color and working class Austinites who have fought for increased investment in their communities must not be penalized for getting better infrastructure and services. And then on the other side, you had people excited about new housing, excited about the idea of these zoning rules. They may not have liked Code Next. Many said the rules didn't go far enough. But they said the city needed new zoning, needed new housing. Change isn't always good, and it isn't always bad, but it always is inevitable. Even if we don't change the code, the city will continue to change around us. And if we don't change the code, all of our big problems will continue to get worse. This is not Charles Dickens' London. A bit of density does not mean disease, plague, and the forfeit of all parkland. It's nearly 2020, and this is like climate change. We know the problems, and we know the solutions. Just like in the 1980s, so much of the focus here was on single-family neighborhoods. One home with one family and a yard is really sacred, not only in Austin, but across the country. People worried allowing duplexes or triplexes would destroy their neighborhoods. Are you really willing to destroy the character of Hyde Park, North Loop, Old Enfield, Clarksville, to say nothing of some of South Austin's established neighborhoods? Amidst all of this was just the boring technicality of it all. You almost needed a PhD to sift through what effect any of this would have on Austin. Talk of transition zones and transects, zoning categories like R1, R2, R3. (laughs) 
Almost as soon as it came out, the new code proposal was under attack. You know, I don't want the fake news not to be able to cover us. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> In March 2018, a group of opponents, mostly homeowners, filed a petition to put the code and any future zoning rewrite to a public vote. They gotten tens of thousands of signatures to get a question on a city ballot, asking voters, do you want final veto power over any new zoning rules? So people would be voting on whether they wanted to vote on this thing and anything like it. This is Fred Lewis. He's an attorney who helped push this ballot measure. At the end of the day, every single person in this city knows what's in their best interest regarding their neighborhood, their home, and their property better than any city councilman. And so we'll rely on them to decide at the end of the day, after we've gone through this, is this in the best interest of the people? Alongside Fred stood people like Susana Almanza. We met her in episodes three and four. Eastside activists like her and others had blamed smart growth for gentrifying their communities. And they weren't about to let that happen again. And so we see the present rewrite of Code Next as the final urban removal (laughs) of low-income, working-class people, and especially people of color. When a petition like this is filed, the city council has two choices. Either accept the petition demands immediately or put them to a public vote. But this city council chose a third option. Do nothing. Their lawyers told them state law didn't allow zoning to go to a public vote, so they ignored the petition. Just like with the Save Our Springs petition in the 90s. Then, just like 30 years before a judge stepped in. In court today, a judge will hear from both sides to determine if that ordinance will go on the ballot after all. The judge said the council had to do something with the petition, so they voted to put it on the ballot that November. And now the ordinance is on the ballot for the people to decide if they want to weigh in or let the council handle it. But it wasn't just this small group of homeowners that opposed Code Next. A small group of council members were also against it. I never was comfortable with the comprehensive or the attempt to make it seem like it was comprehensive to take everything and do it all at once. This is Councilmember Leslie Poole. She represents parts of Northwest Austin. Everything, everywhere, all at once didn't work. We'll hear from her later in this episode. In the meantime, it became increasingly obvious that this whole thing had devolved into a real mess. In August 2018, the mayor told the rest of the council that misinformation around Code Next, Next in Caps, had poisoned the process. This hysteria over the idea that this new code would lead to whole neighborhoods being bulldozed. So Adler suggested we start over. It was clear that the process we were on was not one that was trusted and we need to we need to come up with a, a way to move forward that, that, that the community can trust. About a week later, the council voted to scrap Code Next, Next in caps, at least in name. Code Next, the rewrite of Austin's land development code, is no more. City council voted unanimously just a few minutes ago to bail on the years-long multi-million dollar effort. But wait, that election on whether to force a public vote on any land code rewrite was still happening, with or without Code Next, Next in all caps. And the lawsuits kept coming. This time, the city got sued over how they wrote the ballot measure, like the phrasing they used. Turns out, though, that lawsuit got dismissed. 
Which brings us to election day, November 7th, 2018. Props J and K, which did not pass, those would have required voters to essentially approve code next. And By a narrow majority, voters rejected the ballot measure that would have forced a vote on zoning rewrites like code next. Next in caps, RIP. And then, for a while, nothing happened. Well, not nothing. Rents and home prices kept rising in Austin. Prices continue to soar. The media staff kept working on these new zoning rules. Almost a year after the November vote, the city came out with a new rewrite of zoning rules. Maybe people will like this one better. October 2019, we get the next code next. Next in all caps. And the reactions exactly the same. I have personally invested much time into my community. I go off and I clean all the graffiti off in the whole neighborhood, and I've done it for three years personally. So what you're proposing is taking my home away from me. What can we do when the government is telling us to get out and then they take our homes? I don't imagine you are in any way for affordability. Stop the lies. You have spoken lies so many times, and sadly, so many people believe you. Two months later, some of the same homeowners that helped collect signatures for that petition made good on a threat they'd been making this whole time to stop this thing outright. They sued the city again. On February 18th, a judge will hear arguments in this case. The 19 local property owners suing the city claimed that leaders violated their protest rights by not letting them weigh in on zoning changes that would affect them. State law requires local governments to individually notify landowners when there's a zoning change in their neighborhood. These homeowners argued that the city never did that. And because they didn't, the whole process was void. They've disregarded the citizens from start to finish. This is Doug Becker, the attorney for the homeowners. And said that they could do that, that it was legal, and that uh, in this case they could go forward with rezoning basically the entire city without individual notice. Despite the lawsuit, the council pressed on. In February 2020, weeks before COVID hit Austin and everything shut down, they took a near final vote on the new code. Okay, those in favor of approving item number one on second reading, please raise your hand. Those opposed? Uh, uh, kitchen, altar, pool, and Tovo voting no, the others voting aye. Uh, item number one passes on second reading. By this vote, the city had been working on this for eight years at a price of more than $10 million. And some council members, including council member Delia Garza, just wanted to get it done. We cannot live in this dream world. We have to understand that these are very difficult decisions for every single one of us. And just like I wish I could be, the per- every day I could be the perfect council member and the perfect mom and the perfect wife and the perfect friend, I have to make trade-offs. And that's what we've had to do in this case. And that's why I know we have to keep moving forward. It's been eight years. We need to stop waiting. A month later, a judge heard the homeowner's lawsuit and ruled against the city. The current rewrite was one vote away from becoming a reality, but yesterday, a Travis County District Judge voided the city council's two previous votes. The city appealed, and for a long time during the pandemic, everything with this new code was on hold. Council members didn't bother taking a final vote until the court case was resolved. 
Then, in March 2022, a state appeals court put the final dagger in code next, or whatever it was called at this point. This week, an appeals court sided with a group of residents saying the city didn't allow them to formally protest the rewrite. Code next, by any name, was dead. At the center of this fight was this thousand-page document, full of all these technical terms that, honestly, unless you have a master's in city planning, is really hard to understand. But it was about more than a document. It was about building more and different types of housing for more and different types of people. Regardless of whether we change these zoning rules, these people had already come. During the pandemic, tens of thousands of remote workers moved to Austin, and we didn't plan for that. The people who wrote the rules back in the 1980s never would have seen this coming. Since the lawsuit ended Austin's zoning rewrite, the city has not attempted a new one. It just feels too hot to touch. Elected officials have taken a different approach. So you were, you took office in um, 2015, is that right? That's right. Okay. Prior to that, had you been involved in zoning land use issues in the city? I had not. Councilmember Leslie Poole moved to Austin in the early 80s. And decades before she was elected to city council, she started volunteering for a political movement, the Save Our Springs movement, the push to stop building near the Barton Springs watershed. Getting involved with SOS and that petition work was sort of just an entry point for a lot of people, a lot of people. Poole worked for the county and the state. In 2014, she ran and won a seat on the Austin City Council. And remember, she was part of a small group of council members who opposed the city's rewrite of its zoning rules. Her big issue? It was all happening too fast. Too much, too fast. You have to do it slowly and deliberately and with ample input. But certainly, I mean, code or whatever you want to call it, the land code rewrite happened over almost eight years to a decade, that that feels pretty slow. But it wasn't all the same group of people, and it wasn't all the same issues, and that conversation has been going on for a really long time, sure, Um, but not the actions that were being promulgated around it. So it was surprising when this thing happened last month. A new land development resolution on city council's agenda has rumors swirling on social media. City Council member Leslie Poole says she wants to set the record straight. We are not changing single-family zoning into multifamily zoning. Um, and, and we will have notification on all of these, um, all of this information. After fighting against changing Austin's zoning rules, now Poole was advocating for change. And like, in a big way. She came out and said, let's do something to allow more housing to be built in single-family neighborhoods. She proposed lowering what's called the minimum lot size. Basically, that's the minimum amount of land you need to build one home for one family on one piece of land. Austin's long had a big minimum lot size compared to other cities in Texas. To build one house in Austin, you need at least 5,750 square feet of land. That's about a tenth of a football field. Supporters say lowering this lot size will do a couple of things. One, if you need less land to build on, you can build homes closer together. Two, this will hopefully encourage developers to build smaller types of housing maybe like those duplexes we met in the beginning of this episode. How can we gently densify those neighborhoods 
um, in ways that preserve the community and preserve the neighborhood. And I think this concept has a shot at that. Land's usually the most expensive part of buying a home in Austin. So if we cut up that land, basically give people smaller yards, these homes should be cheaper. And I want to be able to say to my daughter and her fiancé, should they decide to move back to Austin, that I took some, some steps to ensure that the property that's here that you would be able to afford to buy in and live here and raise your family here and have your kids go to the schools that you went to and benefited so much from. That's the hope, at least. And what Poole's doing is the strategy the city's taking now. No more comprehensive rewrite. No redoing the whole thing at once. That didn't go so well. Let's make zoning changes little by little. Like when earlier this year, the council voted to get rid of parking requirements. Maybe making these little changes will be more digestible. About two weeks ago, the council took a vote on this minimum lot size thing. There are some folks who are not happy about this resolution and and they, they are fearful. This extremely prescriptive resolution failed to consider the input of resident homes located on the 176,694 lots that it will impact. The only way this matter goes forward and makes any sense is to further pave the central watersheds. You know, this resolution really is just about handing out massive entitlements. But unlike several years ago, some of these voices were outweighed by people speaking in support of these changes. Houston reduced its minimum lot sizes and is the most affordable major city in the country. We'd love to see more density and diversity in our neighborhood enabled by other small lots like our own. It's my belief that the neighborhood character comes not from the buildings that exist in the city, but from the people that live here. Um, And every day that that Austinites have to leave the city to find cheaper housing, we're losing that neighborhood character from the people. Um, So that's why I support this, uh, this change. Thank you. The measure passed with a vote of nine to two. It had more support on the council than Code Next ever did. I asked Poole what she thinks changed. What changed her? The world is different. We have different expectations of workers, where they're working, how they're working. Transportation is different. We passed Project Connect in in the fall of 2020. I think I'm remembering that right. And, um, And so there are different obligations that the council has, as well as being the 10th largest city in America now. That carries uh, very heavy responsibilities, and I take that very seriously. And I think that, and and so that has all informed uh, the changed dais, the different approach that's more deliberative, and uh, the world has had a reset. So to respond to that, this felt like the time was right for this kind of significant offering, which maybe isn't going to be that significant. It's not going to change things overnight. You can hear Poole walking this fine line. Significant, but also not significant. Poole came up in this city like several other politicians with the Save Our Springs movement. That fight in the 90s was a fight against development, and many of its supporters have maintained that stance. They opposed Code Next. Some were even part of the lawsuit that eventually took it down. And many involved with the group opposed this new minimum lot size thing last month. I asked Poole where she thinks the opposition to Code Next, which she was a part of, and the opposition against this latest measure comes from. 
It could be because that's not the town that they've lived in most of their lives. Uh, I didn't grow up in a small town, and Austin was a small town when I moved here. There was 300,000 people here. You know, we're a million now. So I think it's what are you familiar with and what are you invested in, even if it's subconscious. It's about change. It's about change. I've asked people who sued the city over Code Next what this whole fight is about for them. They told me it's about democracy, transparency, and being heard. Meanwhile, Austin has become a deeply unaffordable city, and we're only now starting to take steps to deal with that and what comes next. Next in all caps. Thanks for listening so far. There's one more regular episode of Growth Machine, how Austin engineered its housing market. Growth Machine is a production of KUT and KUTX Studios in Austin. It's produced by me, Jimmy Moss, Mose Bouchelle, Marissa Charpentier, Nathan Bernier, and Matt Largy. Production help from Heather Stewart. Technical help from Jake Perlman and Renee Chavez. Stephanie Federico is our digital editor. Special thanks to the Austin History Center for help researching this episode. There's more at KUT.org slash growth machine. I'm Audrey McGlinchey. Thanks for listening. 